Hello and welcome to From God to Us. In this podcast, we are exploring various subjects, biblical topics. In our current series, we're in the subject of election and free will. I hope you followed us along at this point. If not, I hope you'll go back and and listen to the other podcasts. Most of these are somewhere between 20 and 30 minutes long. They're not terribly long, and we've explored the various subjects of Arminianism, Calvinism, and looking at those views. We looked at the love of God, and last week we began talking about the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of mankind. This week I want to look at some passages of Scripture, in fact, a whole section of Scripture found in the book of Romans, Romans 9, 10, and 11. Romans 9 is a favorite passage of the Calvinist, but Romans 10 is kind of a favorite passage of the Armenians. And so we need to take these passages and look at them together. This is going to be a little different than what we've done before. I'm going to take Romans 9, 10, 11 and just kind of work through it and look at what it's actually saying and try to draw some conclusions regarding election and faith. But it's important to note that this section is dealing with God's purpose for Israel and the Gentiles. That's the theme, what God has done with the nation of Israel how that relates to the Gentiles in the present age, and what God's future is for the nation of Israel. So we must keep it in that context of what he's talking about. In the book of Romans, so far, Paul has laid out salvation and the Christian life. He's emphasized the sinfulness of mankind. He's talked about the righteousness of God comes by faith, that we are all sinful before God, but we can be saved by faith because of the work of Christ, what Jesus Christ has done. It's salvation by grace through faith. It's not the work of mankind. He's emphasized that issue of faith. He's emphasized our eternal life. He's emphasized the love of God that was poured out upon us. He's talked about how we have been delivered from the power of sin. He's talked about uh, how we, though we still have been delivered from that power, we have a sinful nature. Romans chapter 8, he talks about the work of the Holy Spirit and God's promise to us that we are more than conquerors and what God has done for us. All this about the work of salvation that God has done for all people. And then he comes to chapter 9, 10, and 11, which doesn't really initially seem to fit with what he's been talking about. He turns to the issue of the nation of Israel, and he's going to talk in these chapters about God's purpose for Israel, but also how that relates to the Gentiles. So I'm going to begin in Romans chapter 9 and begin reading, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself would accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs is the divine glory the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Paul begins by saying, I have a great concern for my people, Israel, his brothers, his fleshly brothers, those who are of the nation of Israel, the descendants down from Israel. He has a concern for them, and he says they have been given the divine glory and the covenants and the law and all the things that God has done, the patriarchs. This is part of the history of the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, God's people. And he says, 
I would even be cursed myself if they would come to know Christ. He goes on to say it is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. So he goes on to say, well, there's this, not all of Israel are Israel. And there is the physical descendants, the biological descendants that have come from Israel. Remember that Israel is Jacob. Jacob was renamed Israel. And it was Jacob's 12 sons that became the 12 tribes of Israel and through whom all the descendants of Israel have come. But he says they're not all Israel because they weren't all the children of the promise. What was the promise? The promise was to Abraham at the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Paul kind of dealt with this a little bit earlier, and we need to look back in chapter 4 to understand what he's already laid down for us, that Abraham, according to this promise, believed God. In chapter 4, he says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accredited to him for righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. So Paul has talked about that Abraham believed God. If you go back to Genesis, Abraham believed God and it was credit to him for righteousness. So the children, the true Israelites, there's this kind of spiritual Israelite. There's these Israelites who are the descendants of the promise. And the descendants of the promise are those who had faith in God, who trusted God. So you have the physical descendants that come through Jacob, through Israel. But you have, in some sense, the spiritual descendants are those who are the children of the promise, who come from Abraham, who are the children of faith. So you have these physical descendants, and you have, the, in some sense, the spiritual descendants, those who come to God by faith. Not only that, in verse 10, we go back to chapter 9, not only that, but Rebekah's children had one of the same father, our father Isaac, yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So he goes on to now Rebekah. Rebekah's children, he, she had Jacob and Esau. Jacob was chosen to be the one through whom the nation would come. Jacob was renamed Israel. The children of Israel are the descendants of Jacob. These are the physical descendants of Jacob. The nation of Israel was chosen by God to be his representatives in the world. The physical nation of Israel was God's elect chosen people. When he says that God's purpose and election might stand, God chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to be the patriarchs of the nation of Israel of the physical nation of Israel, of the, of the biological descendants of Jacob. But there's another descendant, which is the spiritual descendants of those who come by faith. And this statement of Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, 
Sometimes this is misunderstood because it's implied, or it seems to imply, that this was what God said to Sarah, but you won't find that anywhere in Genesis. This is a quote from Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, which was quoted and written down a thousand years after Jacob and Esau were dead. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Jacob, who was the one to bring on the nation of Israel. God chose Israel to be his representatives in the world, but not all Israel was saved. We brought this out before. The nation was already elect, but they weren't all saved. The ones who were saved were those who came by faith, those who accepted the promise by faith. These are the ones who were saved. This is following through God's choice of the nation of Israel. He chose certain ones to be the leaders and the patriarchs and the forefathers of the nation. And the entire nation was elect, but only some were the spiritual descendants, those who came by the faith. So there was those who were chosen to be the nation. There were those who were saved by faith. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is God unjust? Not at all. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. So now we turn to this issue of God's mercy and his hardening. God has mercy on whoever he wants. That's sovereign control of God. He talks about how he hardens those. And, and Pharaoh was raised up so that God would display his power. In other words, Pharaoh was raised up. He resisted Moses and he resisted God. And through that, God displayed his great power through all the miracles and the deliverance of the nation of Israel. We have to look at who Pharaoh was. He was the king or the leader of the most powerful nation in the world at that time. The Pharaohs believed basically they were gods. They had rejected Yahweh. They had rejected the people of Israel. They had enslaved them. Pharaoh had already rejected God, and he believed himself to be God. And so God takes this person who has already hardened his heart against him and continues to harden his heart so that he may bring about his power and his glory and the deliverance of Israel. And so some might say, well, God chose beforehand that he was going to turn Pharaoh into this hardened person. And others would say, well, God responded to Pharaoh because of his hardened heart and he continued to harden him. But the fact is that God has the authority to do this. He's in control and he can show mercy, and, but he also can harden people who have already turned their hearts against him. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us who resist his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to what is formed? Why did you make me this way? Does the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay pottery for the noble purposes and some for common use? So he's saying here, okay, God can make anybody the way he wants. He can choose to make some person for noble use and some for common use, just like the potter does. Verse 22, what if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but from the Gentiles? So he's given kind of a what-if scenario. This is not statements of fact, but he says, what if? 
choosing to show his wrath, he, he bore great patience to those prepared for destruction. Here the Calvinist would say, see, these people were already prepared for destruction. It was God's choice to choose them, to destroy them, and to burn them hell for all eternity. Where the uh, Armenian would say, well, they're prepared for destruction because they rejected God. They would go back to John 3.18. He who believes in me is not condemned. He who believes not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So there's two ways to look at those prepared for destruction. Some say God predetermined it. Others say they were prepared for destruction because of their rejection of God. So there's two ways to look at that. And then what, what if he did this to make his glory known in those that he showed mercy to? And then he goes on to extend this to say not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. So now he's going to bring the Gentiles into the picture. God chose the nation of Israel to be his representatives in the world. As we're going to see, they rejected God. Uh, many of them did. And ultimately, God brings the Gentiles in. He begins to quote from the Old Testament, from Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call her my loved, the one who is not my loved one. In other words, he's talking about bringing the Gentiles in. Again, he says, and it will happen that in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called the sons of the living God. This is referring to bringing the Gentiles in. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on the earth with speed and finality. Again, Isaiah says previously, Unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom and would have been like Gomorrah. So he's comparing this the nation of Israel with the Gentiles. God is going to bring the Gentiles in because of Israel's rejection. They had not completely accepted God. You can go back to Isaiah and see all these things where they had rejected God's truth and God's prophets. And so God predicted that someday he would bring the Gentiles in as well. So there's this thing about Israel, though they were elect and chosen to be God's representatives because of the lack of faith and lack of trusting him, he's going to bring the Gentiles in. He goes on in verse 30, and now he's going to kind of bring in this whole issue of faith back into the discussion. What then shall we say? that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. This is the theme of the whole book of Romans. We receive a righteousness of God by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. See, I lay a stone in Zion that causes men to stumble, a rock that causes them to fall, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So he says, okay, the Gentiles received the righteousness of God by faith, but the Jews didn't receive it because they pursued it by works. You know, you're not saved by works, you're saved by faith. And, and here again, whoever trusts in him will never be put to shame. So he's bringing this issue of faith into the whole discussion. Israel had the opportunity. God gave them the laws and asked them to obey, but there still was this issue of faith that determined who would be the spiritual descendants, who would be those who would be saved, who would be those who would be the descendants of the promise, the promise which was brought about by faith, or was always accepted by faith. He goes on in chapter 10, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God is that the Israelites is that they may be saved, for I can testify about them that they are zealous for God. But their zeal is not based on knowledge. 
Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Now Paul is getting into this, everyone who believes. He's talking about the election of Israel and how God can use whoever he wants. But now he says, there's this faith issue. He's bringing this faith issue into the discussion. Moses, in verse 5, Moses describes it in this way. The righteousness that is by the law, the man who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the death. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth. It is in your heart. And that is the word of faith that we are proclaiming, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God is raising from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with the mouth you are confessed and are saved. So Paul brings this whole issue in. It, it's not by works. It's by faith. He says it's near you. It's with you. If you will take that and exercise that faith, you will be saved. Verse 9 says, if, and this is very clear in the Greek, it's, it's not a statement of fact. It's just a statement of, okay, you maybe you will believe and maybe you won't. But if you do, if you confess with your mouth, and it's not certain that you will, it's an if statement. And it's a third class statement, which I can explain that. But it's saying, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in his heart, you will be saved. It's not a certain, it's not a predetermined, it's something that may happen. And if you do this, you will be saved. You will be declared righteous. Verse 11, as the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between the Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is the Lord over all and richly blesses all who call on him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now here, Paul is saying, you have to call on the name of the Lord and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's not who God calls, it's who calls on the name of the Lord. So there's this emphasis that anyone can call on the name of the Lord. And he goes on and explains it. How then can they call on the one whom they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. You can't believe unless you hear. And you can't hear unless someone brings the message. You have to be able to hear the word, the message, before you can be saved. You're not saved and then you believe. Not according to this passage anyway. Verse 16, but not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah said, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. The way you're saved is you hear the message, and then you believe. You have to hear the message, and you have to accept it, and you have to believe. Verse 18, but I asked, did they hear? Of course they did. The voice has come out of all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. And I ask again, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation, and I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah says, I was found with those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But Isaiah also says, all the day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. God gave Israel the opportunity. He gave them the calling. He gave them the prophets. He gave them the word of God. He gave them all these marvelous things, and they were to be his representatives in the world. They had the opportunity to, to receive and to accept it and to trust by faith and to receive these things and, and to do that, but they rebelled. They were 
a disobedient and obstinate people, but it says God holds out his hands. He continues to hold out his hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. So in these passages so far in Romans 9 and 10, Paul is talking about God's choice of the nation of Israel, God's ability to work with people however he wants. He brings the Gentiles in because Israel has rejected, at least a large part of them have. There are those who are saved, those who come by faith through the promise, but there are those who are elect. The entire nation is elect through Israel, but only those who are saved are those who come by faith. And he emphasizes this by faith in chapter 10. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And now he's brought in both Jews and Gentiles. This is not just Jews. It's not just elect. It's Jews and Gentiles. He brings this together. So there's this issue of God's election of Israel, God's choice to use people however he wants, but yet there's this issue of salvation or righteousness comes by faith. Chapter 11, we'll hit it quickly. He talks about the remnant, that there's a remnant that has been saved of Israel. He's coming back to Israel, so he has Israel. He talks about the Gentiles. He talks about Israel again, and then he talks about the engrafted branches in chapter 11, which is the wild olive branch. He's referring to the Gentiles. He, he uses this illustration of the root, which would be God, and the nation of Israel is the natural branches. They're cut off. The wild branches or the Gentiles are grafted in. But he goes on to say to the Gentiles, don't think that you're, you're going to be there permanently because the Jews can come back if they, if they don't persist in unbelief. If they, if they believe, they will be grafted back in. You're brought in to God by faith. That was given to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles were sent to some sense to make Israel jealous. God brought them in. If you look in the first part of Acts, the apostles thought that the gospel was just for the Jews. And some of them were astounded that God was saving the Gentiles by the same message that he was saving the Jews. And they had to come to this acceptance of the fact that God had brought the message, this salvation to all people, not just to the Jews. And so God brought the Gentiles in. Ultimately, he says in the end of the chapter that all Israel is going to be saved. When the full number of Gentiles comes in, then all Israel will be saved in that time. He talks about at the very end of that, For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Earlier he said he'll have mercy on some, he'll harden some. But now he says all men are disobedient, bound them over. Why? Because of their sinfulness. They've chosen to sin but he may show mercy on them all. God's message of mercy is available to all. So if we look at this whole section of God's choice of Israel, his use of people for whatever reason, the issue of faith that you, you come to Christ, anyone who trusts in Christ can be saved, and the fact that God will eventually bring Israel back. It's all about what God is going to do with Israel. But there's a lot of things that the Calvinists are going to emphasize some of the the election verses, the Armenians going to emphasize the faith verses, but they all go together. Somehow in this passage, they all go together. God is sovereign. He's in control. But he says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so there's this issue of faith that has to enter in, this personal faith. And it's not because God saves you first. Salvation, justification, righteousness come as a result of the faith that a person expresses. How much is that is predetermined? Well, there again, we go back to the Calvinist says, well, it's already chosen by God. The Armenian says God responds to the faith of mankind. Chapter 11 ends with this, verse 33. 
Oh, the depth of riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things and to him be the glory forever. Amen. This issue of election and free will, this issue of Arminianism and Calvinism has been debated and gone on for nearly 2,000 years. The Calvinist thinks he's cornered the market on this. The Arminian thinks he's cornered the market on this. But the bottom line is none of us fully comprehend it all. God is sovereign and in control, and there is in some sense an election. Yet at the same time, God holds men accountable for their choices, for their actions, and for whether or not they accept or trust him in faith. You cannot be saved of yourself. You cannot work for it. You cannot earn it. You cannot deserve it. You cannot prove it. It's something you receive simply by faith in Jesus Christ. God's salvation, his righteousness, his justice, his mercy, and his grace are all poured out upon those who will trust and receive Jesus Christ by faith and faith alone. Well, this is a confusing passage. There's a lot more we could say about it, but I think you have to keep it in context with what Paul is trying to communicate to us. God's purpose for Israel, his purpose for the Gentiles, and ultimately where he's going to return back to Israel. That's the message here. And though God chooses the nation, those who come by faith are those of the ones that will be saved. And that is basically ultimate message of this text. Well, I hope you'll do a little bit more study into this. It's a lot of information to go through and try to come to some conclusion of this. So I just trust and pray that you will give some effort and thought to this text, what the text is really saying, what God is really communicating to us through this passage, and draw your conclusions from that. May God bless you as you continue to study his word.